0: And we're going to jump once again right into the scripture this morning. And I know, we're, I realized that as we were going through, uh, as I was preparing this week, that we've kind of hovered around the gospel of Matthew um, for a while now. And that is, uh, that's not intentional, by the way. It's just, it just happened to have happened this way. Is, the, is my headset mic on, Wes? Gotcha. Thank you, brother. So we're going to jump right into the scripture. Uh, it's one that we see a lot during the Advent season, generally around week two, at uh, it's one that I kind of prefer. I just I just like reading it. I like going through it. And it's just a it's just a cool little story to me. But it comes out of the third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses one through eleven. <clears throat> Matthew chapter three, one through eleven. You can direct your attention up here to the screen or if you happen to have a Bible. Starting in verse one, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the word of God for the people of God. If you're familiar at all with this story, you know this is, this is John the Baptist pronouncing the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, who was, who was already here on earth by this time. By this time, Christ is an adult, and I'll just give you a little history if you guys didn't know this. John and Christ were, were cousins. Uh, John the Baptist was a little bit, about, about six months older than Jesus. Uh, so anyway, as I, I really love this morning that our scripture came, or the Advent writing scripture came out of the book of Isaiah. Because that's the prophecy that we see here, right here at the beginning of uh, Matthew 3. Let me reread it real quick. In uh, verse 3, John says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And this is the prophecy that the Gilliam family read this morning, once again from the Old Testament. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That was the prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, who was saying, Prepare the way for Christ, prepare the way for the Messiah. So Jesus is about to get baptized, but we're not going to get to that point today. This is just, again, John the Baptist announcing that he was, he was coming. Somebody greater than him. Somebody whose shoes he was not even worthy to, uh, to untie or to tie, rather. John Baptist is a very interesting biblical character to me. He's a le- little bit To say he's a little bit crazy would be kind of an understatement. John the Baptist kind of comes off as a lot crazy. You know, here's a guy who's, who's wearing a leather belt. He's the guy who's eating locusts and wild honey for his, for his food. This is a guy who does not mince words, by the way, as we can see in his dialogue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees today. He doesn't hold back. He says what needs to be said, and he says it pretty bluntly. I like that about John. John is very matter-of-fact. John was also the first prophet in 400 years. Y'all may remember I talked about this last week, that God was silent. You know, we talked about the darkness of Advent, the darkness that, that preceded the birth of Jesus even the darkness that we're going through now, despite the fact that Christ has come and and is already building His kingdom on earth. They, too, were going through a period of darkness. And again, we touched on that last week. 400 years of silence. 400 years of absolute silence from God. There were no prophets. There was nobody prophesying. There was nothing. God was eerily, eerily quiet. Then enters John the Baptist. He's the first prophet that we see. After that 400-year time span, he breaks through the darkness just a little bit to announce the coming of Christ, to announce the coming of the Messiah, the one who was about to be baptized, the one who was about to start preaching and teaching and healing, and also himself preaching the gospel of repentance for salvation. John the Baptist was the first sign of hope in four centuries. He came preaching, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Repentance was his next thing, the next thing that he said. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's going to be our primary topic today. Remember last week we talked about, uh, you know, in the medieval church, that the, first, that, that the four weeks of Advent were not initially peace, love, joy, and um, hope, that they were repentance and hell and those types of things. I'm bringing you guys slowly into the celebration. Because let's face it, repentance is one of those things we don't like to talk about anymore. I heard a lot about repentance growing up, but I don't hear it preached very often. I don't like preachers. I don't like teachers who don't preach the idea and the practice and the discipline of repentance because that is biblical all day long. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus Christ preached repentance. The Apostle Paul preached repentance. And that's what we're looking at today as we prepare the way for Christ Where do we need to repent? Where do we fall in to this idea of repentance as the church right now? As we anticipate the birth, as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Like last week, we got to slow down. We can't just jump straight into Christmas. It's time to evaluate ourselves a little bit. It's time to think deeply. It's time to search our hearts. It's time to search our souls. It's time to search our behavior, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Where are we failing Jesus Christ, where are we failing to live, to think, and to be the gospel in the community of Valdosta, Georgia, the community surrounding Bemis United Methodist Church? It's a primary practice in the Christian life, folks, and I've talked a good bit about confession, but I don't think I've talked about repentance a whole lot, not in, not in real depth anyway. But this is such an absolutely necessary aspect of the Christian life. We cannot avoid it. Even all the way back to the Old Testament in Lamentations 3.40 reads, Let us examine our ways, and let us test them, and let us return to the Lord. That's all about self-evaluation. It's all about repentance, turning back to the Lord. Maybe John's words seem harsh to us. Maybe John's words seem harsh to us. I said in the beginning, they're certainly straightforward, and John doesn't mince words in this gospel narrative today. But see, here's the problem a lot of times as we've come... To view repentance as being an ugly word, I don't think it was ever—I ne- don't think it was ever meant to be an ugly word, but that's how we've come to view it a lot of times, and a lot of times that's the fault of the church. A lot of times that's the fault of of, of preachers and teachers and evangelists who might be just a little bit gung ho, a, a little too gung ho, about trying to get people down to the altar for the sake of numbers. Repentance is not an ugly word. Repentance is a beautiful, beautiful word. Unfortunately. Over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, we've, we've had this problem in the church where it's kind of come with this, this, uh, this stigma of being nasty, for lack of a better word. I used to not like the word repentance. There was a time not too many years ago where I, I detested that word. I hated it because that was the atmosphere that I was raised in. That little term really has the ability to elicit all kind of negative responses from a lot of us, particularly negative responses from people who are not inside the church once again primarily due, in my opinion and I'll tell you when it's my opinion primarily due, I think because of the harshness by which it has been preached whether it has been intentional or not the message we have often received on the subject of repentance is that of a very very angry God a very very angry God who doesn't like us a whole lot and he's just itching to send us to hell That's not the God of the Bible, folks. That's not the God of Christianity. God has no desire to send us to hell. He gives us that choice. Nonetheless, a lot of people have been hurt, and a lot of people have been repelled by Christianity because of the way that the doctrine or the theology or the idea of repentance has been preached. But after coming to a better understanding of it, a true understanding of it, I have come to realize, and I've come to regard the idea of repentance as one of the most beautiful, life-affirming aspects, disciplines, practices within the Christian identity that there is. And I truly mean that. Repentance is not a finger in your face. And I may have said that to you before. It's not somebody pointing a finger. It's not self-righteous indignation. Okay? Repentance simply means this. It simply means to change our minds. It simply means to change our minds... And our hearts—it simply means that we are conforming, or we are submitting our minds, and/or our hearts, instead of towards our will, towards the will of God. It's about reorientation. Okay, we've talked about selfishness, we've talked about sinfulness, we've talked about self, um, self will, those types of things. We reorient ourselves away from those things. And we orient ourselves towards, we submit our lives, our minds, our hearts towards the will of God. We change. That's all repentance is. It's not me pointing at you. It's not me telling you you how sorry you are, what a horrible person you are. I'm sure you got enough in your life where you beat yourself up enough over some of this stuff. This is stuff you have to decide on your own a lot of times. It's simply about changing our minds, changing our hearts, reorienting ourselves away from me towards the will of God, which is what, church, as we as I have preached from day one, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as ourselves. One of the pastors or theologians that I read while I was preparing for this sermon kind of summed up the idea of repentance like this, and I think it's just a beautiful summation. He says, people dislike the call to repentance because they don't understand what repentance means. That's exactly what I just said. Repentance does not mean self-torment. It does not mean being judged by others. It means turning away from the corruption and the idolatry of fallen humankind and letting our hearts be moved by the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. How cool is that? What a cool, cool statement that is. I'm going to repeat that because... I, and I hope this sinks into you like it did me when I, when I read it. Repentance is not self-torment. It doesn't mean being judged by others. It means turning away from the corruption, from the idolatry of fallen humankind, and allowing our hearts to be moved by the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. Anyone who has gone through true repentance knows that it makes the heart melt like wax. Has anybody else in this room experienced that? Come on, y'all, y'all, y'all raise some hands. Tell me. This is your brothers and sisters. We can be honest with each other. Repentance is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when it happens to us. And it does make your heart melt like wax. When I'm in line with God's will, my heart is on fire and my heart is at rest. My heart and my mind are at peace. Peace. You want to know what repentance brings in your life for one thing? It's the subject of the second week of Advent. Peace. Peace. What did we talk about last week? We talked about staying awake, staying alert, keeping watch, engaging constantly in self-evaluation, true, honest repentance. And there's a second part of this particular portion of Scripture that I want to bring home to you as well. Along with the Idea of repentance in and of itself, and you find this in verses seven through nine. And I hope that we take this to heart. Remind, let me remind you now. When I preach stuff to you guys, I'm preaching to myself all day long. I'm sure y'all have had pastors over the years who have told you that. I don't. Everybody ever want anybody to think that I'm trying to preach self-righteously. This is always stuff that I've got to remind myself of, keeping a check on me as well. So don't ever think I'm trying to do that by any stretch of the imagination. But verses 7 through 9 is a message to us just as much as it was a message to this audience 2,000 years ago, and it's a powerful one. I'm going to reread it real quick. (coughs) When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Just like Jesus (laughs) in subsequent narratives in the Gospels, just like Jesus, we see John the Baptist confronting religious people. Okay? Understand this, and I'm going to try to give you, because I know not, 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 not everybody knows some of this stuff. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, when you read about these folks, particularly in the Gospels, these were heavily religious people. These were not non-religious people. These were very, very religious people. Okay? There are a number of instances that you'll find in the Gospels where Christ himself criticizes these particular groups. There's other verses where he himself refers to them as a brood of vipers. We'll talk about that in just a second. But nonetheless, these are religious people. In this particular scene, they just kind of show up. We don't know what they're doing here. The the, the Bible doesn't tell us why they're there. They just kind of show up on the scene. Maybe they were there to get baptized themselves. We don't know that. Maybe they were there, and this would have been more in line with the way that they operated. Maybe they were there just to observe, to observe and criticize and critique, because we find them doing that oftentimes with Christ in the Gospels as well. We don't know why they're there. But nonetheless, as soon as they show up, John the Baptist gets ornery. And he turns to him and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit and keep you in repentance. And don't think that you can say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. So yeah, Christ also uses this expression brood of vipers a couple, a few times in the Gospels as well. It's another one of those things we don't really know what it means. There's a, there's a lot of suggestions out there. Sometimes some people believe that it, he's referring to uh, uh, the serpent from Genesis, it's kind of a comparison to them being the serpent in Genesis. Sometimes it, uh, it, some people believe it could have been a, uh, uh, basically an expression to identify people who were, who were full of hate, um, th- that type of thing. So, we, But we really don't know. Maybe it was both of them. Nonetheless, it's not good. It wasn't a positive affirmation, okay? And I think we could all gather that simply from the context of, what, of the conversation that's going on here. It wasn't good. But I get back to what I said a second ago. These were still religious people. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees were expressions of Judaism. Okay? Always remember this, too. Jesus Christ was a Jew. Okay? But anyway, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were different expressions of Judaism. Just like we have Christianity today. Just like we have Baptists and we have Methodists, for example. Okay? They're just different expressions, of, of uh, or were different expressions of of. of, Ju- of Jewish religious life. So if you want to kind of look at it like that, they were, they were, they were different denominations. But they, were, they, they, they practiced and they believed certain things different from one another, just as we practice and believe some different things, you know, among, between the Baptists, between the Pentecostals, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, though, here's, the, here's what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees kind of separated themselves from non-Jewish people. They wouldn't have anything to do with non-Jewish people whatsoever. If you were not Jewish, the Pharisees would not touch you. They would not speak to you. At all. They were very, very dedicated to following the Old Testament laws, and they were very, very dedicated to following the oral, the spoken traditions that had been handed down to them over the centuries. Unfortunately, they also considered these oral traditions to be equal to the laws that God had given them. They believed that their man made rules were just as important as God's rules. Their piety, their piety, their false. Self-righteous piety is normally what Christ would condemn them for or criticize them for in the narratives in the Gospels. Their piety or their false piety. Because it was often hypocritical. The Pharisees were often more concerned, and here's what I'm trying to get out, they were often more concerned about giving the appearance of being religious than they were actually about being religious in their hearts. In their devotion to God, and their devotion to people. It's very important that we, that we remember that. They were more concerned about how they looked than they, how they actually believed, felt, operated. The Sadducees believed in the law of Moses. They believed in all the purity laws and all that stuff. They did not believe that the Old Testament was the word of God. The thing about the Pharisees is that they were very, very willing. They were more than willing to compromise their values with the Roman Empire. And they were very willing to compromise their values with other organizations to maintain their status and to maintain their influential positions within society. I'm going to ask you folks now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does any of this sound familiar? Of course it sounds familiar. Because 2,000 years later, we observe and we do the same things. We continue to see false piety. We continue to see people wearing religion on their sleeves, pretending to be something that they're not. We continue to see people occupying church pews who have no real dedication or commitment to Christ. And we certainly see people and religious groups cuddling up to political groups and other organizations for the purpose of status and power and notoriety. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Being religious does not give us a free pass. Just because you were born into a church doesn't mean you get a free pass. Just because you show up every now and then on a Sunday morning or on Christmas or on Easter doesn't mean you get a free pass. Just because you were born into this religion doesn't mean that you get a free pass. Do you bear the fruits of a person, of someone who is repentant? That's what he's asking. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and don't think that just because you were born into this religion that you get a free pass with God. You don't. You don't. Again, folks, these were religious people. These were religious people outwardly. Very devout outwardly. Very much given the appearance of being in line with God. They were not. They were not. They were sellouts to a great degree. They were sellouts. They had false piety and they would sell out to anybody for just a little bit of power. I'm going to tell you again I don't like people who don't, in churches that don't preach repentance, folks, because it's not of what the gospel is. I love grace. I love the idea of grace. Y'all know that I talk about love and grace and mercy a lot. But I also talk about repentance. Because let me make make no mistake about this. There is no salvation without repentance, folks. Somebody give me an amen on this. Help me out with this. There is no salvation without repentance. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Jesus never taught that. Paul never taught that. There is no growth. There is no Christian growth, spiritual growth, without the practice of repentance. Certainly there's no justification without repentance. And you see this in churches all the time, folks. It's all about love, and it's all about grace, and it's all about mercy. I believe in all that, all day long. It's also about holiness. Doesn't God want you to be happy? No, God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be in line with His will, not for the purpose of beating us up or do or, or doing us, mistreating us, because it's for our own good. There is no salvation without repentance, church. One person in history that made a wonderful statement on this subject was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or Bonheffer. I never know how to how to pronounce it, but he was a uh, he was a German. Pastor and theologian during the time of the Nazi regime, as a matter of fact, he was a he was a Nazi uh, dissident, and he was way, he, he was wound up he wound up being hung uh, by the Nazi movement just before just before they were taken over uh, for his beliefs and his practices. But one of the things that he he wrote about grace a lot, and he wrote about the practice of discipleship a lot, and some of the things that I hear preached in, in churches and some of the things that I hear people believe, he identified even back then. Okay, And what he called it was he called that cheap grace. He called that cheap grace, and here's something he wrote about it. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. When's the last time we exercised any church discipline with our brothers and sisters? They'd leave in a heartbeat. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Somebody, amen me. Thank you. True grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace... Because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Grace is not cheap. It may be free to us, but it's not cheap. And I'm going to repeat what I said again. Salvation does not come without repentance. Spiritual growth does not come without repentance. repentance belongs to us, church. And that's why I wanted to point all that stuff out at the end. He ain't talking to unreligious people here. He's talking to people who thought that they were religious. He's talking to people who believed that they were in the line with God, that they were God's representatives on earth. He wasn't talking to nonreligious people. He wasn't condemning non religious people. He was condemning the religious people. Repentant hearts. Repentance is ours, church. Repentance is ours to embrace. Hours. I told y'all a number once ago, we have a bad habit in the church of pointing fingers and telling non-believers that they need to confess their sins and they need to repent. Where is our part in all this? Are we doing this? Are we evaluating ourselves? Are we repenting of our sins? You're going to find Jesus condemning and critiquing religious people a whole lot more in the Gospels than you're going to find him critiquing non-religious people. We get self-righteous and we get complacent. We think, for a modern term, that our stuff doesn't stink anymore. It does. Repentance is ours to embrace. I'm sorry if this is not a positive Christmas time message, but it is an Advent message. Just as darkness last week wasn't a comfortable message, repentance this week is not a comfortable message. But there's beauty on the other side of it, church, and that's what I want you to know. There's beauty... And there's growth, and there is light, and there is rebirth on the other side of repentance. And it's ours. It's ours to take. But we have to be willing to submit. I'm going to finish up with this short quote that I read um, again in preparation for this sermon. The author writes, Many of us want salvation without repentance. said that multiple times. Many of us want salvation without repentance. I believe this is what many in our congregations wish for as well. We want God to remake, this is important, we want God to remake our land into something moral and upright again, but we don't want to repent of our own complicity in its decline. I need some voices out there on that one. Give me some voices. I'm going to repeat it again. We want God to remake our land into something moral and upright again, but we do not want to repent of our own complicity in its decline. What a powerful statement. What a powerful, powerful and true statement. Can I get somebody to go grab the children and Vanita and Sandy, please? One of the reasons that we use purple... Um, as a liturgical color during Advent and also Lent. Uh, For one thing, purple represents royalty. It's a color for royalty, and of course it's a color for uh, the kingship of Christ. But purple also is symbolic of repentance as well. We preach and we focus a lot more during the the, uh, season of Lent on this idea than we do in the season of Advent, but they're definitely both very applicable for both these seasons. Communion is a wonderful time to focus on that. Communion is a wonderful time not only to focus on what Christ has done for us, but also to evaluate ourselves. I hope somebody's heart is stirring. I ain't trying to beat nobody up by any stretch of the imagination, but I hope that God has used this message to somehow stir somebody's hearts. And as we're going through communion, maybe we just need to draw our hearts towards where we are failing God, where we are failing ourselves, where we are failing one another, where we are failing the kingdom of God. Where is my sin in all this? Where is my complicity in all of this bad stuff that's going on around us? Maybe we should think about that as we remember what Christ has done for us through the atonement. Maybe we need to pray at the altar as we receive communion. I saw some folks do that last month. I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. They got down, they prayed here at the altar as they, after they received communion. Maybe we just need to do that.